in your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes. As we continue our study in Ecclesiastes, we'll finish the book of, or I'm sorry, the chapter 7 today. And as you're turning there, let me remind you as a church that we are committed to expository preaching. I, I mentioned that that phrase, that word, um, when we uh, in my introduction, and so I say expository preaching, and probably ninety ninety nine percent of you say what? We may even know the term and throw it around, but what is it? Expository preaching, which is a a core tenet of this church is that the main point of the text is the main point of the message. That the message finds its source in the scripture being considered. This causes us to stay within the boundaries of the text. We don't get to invent stuff. Or to start with a scripture about something and then go talk about something else. So by this, both the preacher and the listeners are conformed into the image of Christ. This is one main component of making disciples, which Christ commanded us to do. Make disciples of all the nations. And one of the primary means by which we make disciples is through the expository preaching of God's Word. That is, we are hearing... So, that is one of our main reasons, or main components of, uh, of discipleship hearing the word of God. So if you will, church, would you stand and hear the word of God? Listen, church, to the inerrant word of the living God. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this and from that withhold not your hand for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives us strength. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on the earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been far off and deep, very deep, who can find it out? I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters, who he who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man in a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I have found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Church, you can be seated. So we're continuing, as we we continue our our study in the book of Ecclesiastes, it is... uh, Uh, proving, I think, to be a very practical and a very relevant book. 
But let me just remind you of where we've been and then a, a brief reminder of where we're going to go and then we'll delve into this uh, rather fascinating, somewhat um, challenging passage of text. But where we've been, the preacher has taken us to realize that the pursuit of common idols cannot ultimately satisfy. That the pursuit of common idols cannot ultimately satisfy. Idols such as um, possessions and influence and money and sex and parties and power, all of these things that um, make up our lives uh, when they become ultimate and when they are um, pursued as an end in and of themselves, the preacher has shown us that they never fully satisfy. And the preacher has been involved in all of them. In fact, um, when they become ultimate, when they become a means to, to an end, they actually end up producing injustice and oppression of others. When I desire a, a, a better position, I am likely to put down another person to walk over them in order to attain my position of power. But when the pursuit of God is ultimate, and we're going to call that the fear of God, when the pursuit of God is ultimate, when we fear God above all things, it provides proper priority for all of those elements Um, There is a proper priority for position and influence and money and sex and parties and power. In fact, um, when God is ultimate and when the fear of God is what is motivating and driving us, God actually allows us or actually uh, it fosters an enjoyment of those gifts. They are not ultimate. We see them as as gifts and they become uh, blessings of God who is ultimate. When his gifts are not ultimate, his gifts bring us joy and they bring us satisfaction and they bring us contentment. The question then, and we began to talk about this last week then, is how then shall we live? If this is true, the pursuit of these things as ultimate does not bring satisfaction and does not bring us contentment, but the pursuit of God does, then how do we live before this great an awesome God. How does the creature live rightly before the Creator in a world that has eschewed the fear of God, that has diminished the fear of God, that has ridiculed the fear of God? How does a person live? How does the creature live before his Creator in a world that mocks the one who fears God? And so, that's pretty much where we have been, and of course that will be relevant as we go forward. But let me give you a little bit of detail, a little bit of preview as to where I hope to go this morning as we consider this passage of text. The author is going to delve deeper into the topic of injustice. It never strays, injustice never strays too far from the preacher's from the preacher's mind, so we're going to talk about that today. Most specifically, we're going to talk about why do the righteous suffer? That's a really good question, and one that people ask often. Why do the righteous suffer? And the preacher is going to give us maybe an answer that doesn't thrill us so much. He's going to take us down some paths that many hope to, uh, to avoid, 
I don't know if you remember way back to when we started um, the book of Ecclesiastes, I gave you a very, very detailed drawing of the path that the author takes through um, his exploration of wisdom. And basically it was just scribble. He just goes all over the place and he goes down a lot of dead ends and explores a lot of paths that lead nowhere. But he explores everything fully. And today he is going to go down a path that hmm, is interesting. It's a path that many people might want to avoid. And the preacher, the author of our text, may not arrive at an answer to the question, the question being, why do the righteous suffer? But he is going to explore some very real and yet uncomfortable truths. And ultimately, one of the things that we may arrive at is that perhaps things aren't exactly as they seem. Maybe things aren't what they seem to be. Perhaps, maybe, perhaps the righteous are not so righteous. And so that's the path that he is going to take us on. He's going to ask questions and explore some, um, some dark alleys today. And I think that we will be blessed. So look at how he begins. <clears throat> um, in my vain life, I've seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. I've kind of put this in your notes. I've put this as kind of his thesis statement. This is the, 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 the manner, this is the, the governing statement that's going to guide the rest of this chapter. Basically, it goes like this. Life's not fair. Why do good people suffer and the wicked seem to prosper? We ask that all the time. We see men and women who are godly and they, and, and they go through unspeakable difficulties, perhaps in health or with uh, even health with their children or they um, are unjustly accused of, of and, and legal action is taken against them. We are, or perhaps they, they open a, a business and then it fails and we wonder why? Why do the righteous suffer? Why do good people suffer and the wicked seem to prosper? I mean, we all know evil, evil men and evil women who are sitting in an island resort drinking drinks with little umbrellas in them and enjoying the good life. Why? That's not fair. Especially when I know somebody who's a good person and they're struggling and this wicked individual is just coasting. Let me make sure that I define the righteous. The righteous person here is not just one who is outwardly good, but certainly it is one who lives in accordance with God's law. This is the, today we would say the Christian, the, the one who is sold out for Christ, the one who has made God their priority. Why are bad things happening to them? Why is his life cut short before its time? And yet the wicked live without consequence. That's our author's thesis statement. And this is important. It is important for us today. It was important for uh, the people to whom um, the author was writing because it was contrary to the wisdom of his day. It's contrary to the wisdom of our day as well. But 
Um, the, the wisdom of the day in which he lived is that the righteous are to have a long and meaningful life while the wicked are deprived of blessing. That's the way things are supposed to work. The righteous are to have a long and prosperous life and the wicked should undergo unspeakable difficulties. Perhaps one of the best um, examples, in, or, or a couple examples in the Bible, but in the Old Testament, I think Job makes a, a, a great illustration of this. The problem that Job's friends had with Job was really a problem that they had with God. And that is, Job was saying he was righteous. But they're going, that just doesn't fit our theology. See, if you were righteous, you wouldn't be going through these hard things. Righteous people don't suffer your suffering, therefore you're not righteous. And Job is saying, no, I, I haven't done anything. I haven't sinned against God. And they're saying, no, God does not treat the righteous in such a way. That's the theology of the day. It's the theology in which they lived. It's also common in the New Testament. The rich young ruler, after Jesus deals with the rich young ruler um, and he departs, he says to his disciples, how difficult is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? What's interesting about that, we all probably say, well, okay, well, that's easy to understand. What's interesting is the disciples didn't understand it. They ask the, the very important question, who then can be saved? If this rich man, who has it all, who has um, power and authority and has wealth and has everything, a life going well, if he can't be saved, who? Who can be saved? Because their thinking, their, their, their idea is that those who have it easy, those who have wealth and those who have position and those who have it have it good, certainly they're right before God. And Jesus is now saying that it's harder for a rich man to, to enter, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they're going, well then, really, if the rich can't be saved, what about us poor, broken down fishermen? course, the blind man in John, I believe it's John chapter 9, was the question that, that the people asked Jesus about the blind man. Who sinned, this man or his parents? He's blind because he's not righteous. Somebody has sinned. Somebody has broken God's law and the affliction has fallen upon him. There is a problem. It is not that he is righteous. Somebody has sinned. Somebody has broken God's law and he is bearing the curse for that. Who sinned, this man or his parents? It's prevalent in the New Testament. It's prevalent in the Old Testament and it's prevalent today. We see it today maybe with prosperity teaching. You should not be sick and you should not be broke. If you are, there is something wrong. Not with God, but with you. You don't have enough faith. You must have sinned. You must have done something to bring this illness or to bring this hardship upon yourself. Because God would never allow you, as his child, to suffer or to endure any hardship. So something's wrong with you. It's prevalent today. <clears throat> And let's face it, even those who, who may not hold to uh, such aberrant theology, um, 
might sometimes fall back into that particular ditch. Good times are because I have pleased God and I'm doing well in bad times. My first question is, is you know, I must have sinned. Something must be wrong. I'm, it's like, that's where we go. And this is where the preacher's going. He's going, I've seen the righteous die before their time and I've seen the wicked prosper. I, I think there's a problem with that. The preacher is dealing with a boundless God. The preacher is attempting to grasp the wisdom of this infinite being. He is finding that this infinite God, his, the, the ways of this infinite God are way beyond his ways. That the thoughts of this infinite God are not the same thoughts as the preacher. And he's, he's wrestling with this. He's trying to bring everything together and he's finding that, wow, God's ways... God is God and I am not. And his ways are very, very complex, very difficult for me to grasp. Well, then he goes on and he says this. He seems to give this advice. Be not overly righteous and do not make for yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked. Neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? Well, This is a very, very easy passage to misinterpret, to destroy. It, it's easy, and I've, I've read sermons, and I've read people say things like, here's what the preacher's saying. You don't need to be too righteous. Don't be overly righteous. But you can also, don't be overly wicked, which would imply that I can be a little bit wicked. Just not overly wicked. And I don't want to be, you know, so heavenly minded that I'm no earthly good. So maybe just add, you know, taper back a little bit on my goodness and maybe increase my wickedness just a little bit. And I find that nice sweet spot. And that's what the preacher's saying. That's not what he's saying. It's not what the entire Bible says. Find a middle way. This aligns itself more with Greek thought. It aligns itself, Aristotle would probably get in line with that. Some Eastern ideas, but it is foreign to Scripture. And what follows now are two responses to his thesis statement. His thesis statement is why do the righteous suffer and why do the wicked get off? And he is going to, what, what he's giving us now in this in the section I just read is the response. And the first response, number one, is in regards to the overly righteous. I'm not going to get into all of the uh, gory uh, details, but um, basically, I, I think the, the, uh, at least the ESV translators, all the other translations I read, got this really, really well. Did, did really well with this. Be not overly righteous. And, and the idea here is do not think yourself too upright. In other words, self, he's speaking of self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is being addressed. And, and the preacher brings this up in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 7. Do not be wise in your own eyes. So he's consistent. He is not saying... Diligence in obedience is unnecessary. What he is saying is don't think of yourself as overly righteous or overly wise. We'll see this when we get down to verse 20. 
In other words, confidence in one's own righteousness um, is something that the, the preacher is urging his readers move away from. That now God is obligated to me because I am so good. Look at what I have done. And so certainly God would have favor upon me. And he's saying, watch this. Don't be overly righteous. Don't be, basically the idea is, don't be self-righteous. And response number two then is a response to, well, if evil results in long life, then perhaps a little evil won't hurt. Do you see the logic? Well, I've seen the wicked and they have long life. Well, then if that's true, maybe if I just add a little bit of iniquity to my life and balance it out with my own goodness, then maybe that's where I need to go. And he's saying no. Do not abandon yourself to wickedness. Do not be a fool. This also brings destruction. So, two responses. I've seen to, to the idea that I've seen the wicked die before, or the, the righteous die before their time, and the wicked seem to live in luxury. So, well, therefore, need to be, should I be more righteous and, and be confident in my righteousness? Or perhaps I can add a little bit of evil to my life, and that will be okay. And, and, and the preacher is saying, yet neither of those extremes are, are, are where we want to go. Look at where he does go. Look at his, his, his response. And um, in verse 18, it is good that you should take hold of this and from that. Withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. All right, so take hold of this and that. The this and that is a referral to the, the righteous and the wicked. Take hold of, take hold of what I just said to, in, in both of these situations. It is good not to forget either of the warnings that I just gave you. Don't be consumed with self-righteousness and don't be overcome with evil. Rather, fear God. Imagine that. The preacher of Ecclesiastes said, fear God. That's his thesis. That's his, that's his, I think his, his primary message in the book of Ecclesiastes is fear God. He'll end in his epilogue. He, I, I think is the, the, the big theme is fear God. And fearing God is demonstrated by the rejection of the previous warnings. Don't be self-righteous and don't be wicked. One common commentary said, fulfilling religious function is not necessarily the same thing as having a respectful attitude of God himself. The fear of God will spare you from self-righteousness and the foolishness of the wicked. All right, let me repeat that. The fear of God will spare you from self-righteousness and the foolishness of wickedness. A love for God, what I mean by the fear of God is that a, it is a love for God that esteems him as our greatest joy, that to disappoint God results in our greatest despair. It is then a love for God that esteems him as our greatest joy. When we do that, that is the preacher's advice. I, I have seen uh, the wicked and I've seen the righteous. Don't be, don't be self-righteous. Don't be overly wicked, but rather... Fear God. Have him as your greatest priority. Esteem him as your greatest joy. 
He then goes on and he says, Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on the earth who does good and never sins. And he goes on and says, So despite the warning, he's now going to talk about the strength of wisdom. He hasn't really, he hasn't abandoned the idea of wisdom. He's just kind of taken a short detour. And now he's coming back to the idea of wisdom. And there is strength in being a wise person. Not being a fool, but being wise. And despite the warning about being too wise, which he said earlier in verse 16, um, the preacher, he says, don't be too wise. Don't be wise in and of yourself. Uh, But he's not diminishing true wisdom or wisdom in the right measure. True wisdom is not some self-attained evaluation of your ability. But true wisdom leads us to revere God. So wisdom is not some um, self-attained evaluation of your own abilities. Look how good I am. Man, I'm pretty skilled at this and that and the other. Look how, look at all the philosophers I can quote. True wisdom actually doesn't lead you to a place of quoting philosophers. True wisdom leads you to revere God. And if you are on the path of true wisdom, you will be revering God more and more as you go along. Now, you may be able to quote philosophers and you may know all sorts of mathematical formulas and and, and what have you, but if you do that to the exclusion of not revering God, growing in your reverence for God, then you are lacking in true wisdom. And true wisdom then, he, he lifts up and he exalts and he says, true wisdom is greater security against these errors that we've just talked about, not fearing God, than ten kings in your city. In other words, these kings would be men of power, men of strength. Ten's probably the, kind of that, I don't know, I don't know, we, we might say, well, how was the game? Well, it was a ten. It was the best. Um, it was ultimate. So, um, so, true wisdom, revering God above all things, is greater security against the errors that he has just mentioned than having ten kings in your cities. But that leaves us with another question, or the same question. If God's wisdom offers so much strength, why do the righteous suffer? Now the the preacher is going to give us a a slightly different perspective that I alluded to in our introduction. Self-righteousness, we've discussed, is the facade of... Self-righteousness and the facade of wisdom have been exposed. The author has alluded to this in his thesis statement. And so now what he's going to do is perhaps what we need to do is look a little bit more closely at who are the righteous. If it's, if it's not right that the righteous die before his time, then maybe what we need to do, and, and there's, maybe what we need to do is look a little bit more closely who are the righteous people that we're talking about. Well, that seems like a fair question. And he gives us a very sobering answer. Surely there is not a righteous man on the earth who never sins. Why do the righteous suffer? Hmm. There are none. There is no one who never sins. Or we could 
pick up with how Paul phrased this. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Paul, I think, picks up this verse in Romans chapter 3. And so, what we're going to conclude here is that a necessary component of wisdom is the recognition that all of us sin. Naivete is not wisdom. There is none righteous, no, not even one. There is no person who always does what God requires without fail. They don't exist. Not in any single church, not in any single cathedral, not in any home Bible group, nowhere. Wisdom has strength, but it has the strength of ten kings in a city, but wisdom also recognizes the human creation is frail. So wisdom has strength, but part of the strength of wisdom is realizing that human beings fall short. Human beings are broken. Humans are frail. And then he gives us a couple of examples. I think this is an example not only of the universality of, of sin, but also the strength of wisdom. And the example he gives, he says, do not take it take to heart all the things that people say lest you hear your servant cursing you. So listen, people are talking behind your back. The wise person, the strong wise person does not take it to heart. The strength of wisdom says, you know what? Oh well. People talk behind my back. Listen, doesn't matter who you are or where you, where you, where you are, people talk behind your back. The higher you go up the corporate ladder or the ecclesiastical ladder or any ladder or even if you're the bottom rung of any ladder, people will talk behind your back. The wise person does not take it to heart. That requires great strength. That requires incredible strength because I'm like, oh yeah? Where's my phone? I'm going to get it out and... I'll send a tweet. That'll, that'll ruin them. So the strength of wisdom is displayed and don't take it to heart. But the reality of wisdom that all have sinned is this. You've cursed others yourself. And that's what the preacher says. All... Do not take to heart all the things that people say lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. You've done the same thing. We should not give too much weight to what others have said in their weakness as we have spoken from our weakness as well. And we have said cruel and unkind things and untrue things or even true things meant to harm about others we're guilty of the exact same thing. So, listen, maybe this gets to where Jesus says, you know, get that log out of your own eye. Then you'll be able to see clearly enough to get the speck out of your brother's eye. So, wisdom is strong and enables us to bear with the um, the weakness of others, even when they um, speak unkindly behind our backs. But wisdom is also wise in that it realizes that I, too, have fallen short of the glory of God and I too speak about people behind their back. So, 
all this, wisdom, strength, and the wise person's imperfection, the preacher says, I've tested by wisdom. I've used wisdom's principles to explore these issues. I've exp- and I've asked the questions, are they true? All this I've tested by wisdom. All these things that I've just talked about, I've tested by your wisdom. I've used wisdom's principles to prove whether they are true or not. So I guess then the question is, well, preacher, are they true? And his answer is, here's what I've discovered. These things are deep, really deep, and I haven't grasped them. Some things are beyond, the preacher has discovered that some things are beyond him. The preacher is known as one of the wisest people who has ever lived. And he says, yeah, there there are just some things that are beyond me. I, I don't know everything. And some of these things I see, like why do the righteous suffer? And why do the wicked seem to prolong their days? I don't know. You're probably thinking, I wanted you to wrap everything up real nicely and give us a good solid answer. But the preacher doesn't. He's going, God is way beyond me. And there are some things in this universe I don't fully understand. I have witnessed the providence of God and some of God's ways are beyond me. We see this in Job, uh, certainly in 28, 12, and 20, where Job is like, okay, God, I, I don't get what you're doing, but I will trust you. So I guess maybe one lesson that we can learn is let us not be too quick to label the providence of God unjust. What I mean by that is, you've all heard this, if I were God, right right there you know there's going to be, whatever follows, probably is vanity, vanity, and chasing after the wind. If I were God, I would never allow bad things to happen to anybody, not just to, to... Bad things happen to good people. I wouldn't let bad things happen to anybody. But you remember last week we talked about you don't know the future. You don't know what's going to happen in the next minute. If you did, you would probably make different decisions than you make now. If you knew what was going to happen this afternoon, you would probably make different decisions today, but you don't know. This is what the preacher's saying. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. I don't have all the information. God does. I'm going to allow God to be God. He's got all the information. And somehow, with all of his information, he has allowed and chosen certain things to occur because he has all the information. And I don't. These things are deep. They are beyond me. There are some things I don't get. And there are some things that I'm going to leave in the hands of the Almighty God. And so the preacher, this wise man, has gone down this path and he's explored it a little bit and he's like going, yeah, that's beyond me. And so therefore, church, let us not be so quick to label God and his ways as unjust because you don't have all the information. You don't even see the next minute God has seen all eternity and God is good and God has worked things out to bring about his purposes and that he would be glorified in all things perfectly. So, we now come to verse 25 and the preacher very 
uses a very common phrase, I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things. So the preacher now turns his heart to seek wisdom and the plan of all things. I find it interesting that he he came to a conclusion, well, there are certain things that I just don't get. There are certain things that are beyond me. But he doesn't give up his search. He keeps searching. It's like, well, I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep trying to discover. he's He's a persistent individual seeking out wisdom, seeking out the plans of God, seeking out what he might know and grasp of this vain and empty world. So despite the obstacles that were presented in verses 23 and 24, the preacher does not abandon his, his quest. And here's what he discovered. You ready? Sin has corrupted everything and everyone. The depravity of the human heart is the deepest mystery of, the, of them all. I turn my heart to know and to search out and seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness and folly and the foolishness that is madness and I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose hands are fetters, I'm sorry, whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. This is what I've discovered. That sin has corrupted everything and then he brings in this woman whom is more bitter than death. So then, of course, the question is, who is this woman? And um, all sorts of ideas have been put forth, as you can imagine. Um, Some have put forth that it was Eve and her relationship with Adam after the fall. And I think um, I, I read a number of uh, folks who proposed this, and I think they make a fairly good case. I almost went with it. Um, Eve and her relationship um, with Adam after the fall, how um, uh, you will seek master over him, but he will rule over you. And, and there are some really good, I think, a, a good argument. My, my problem is, is that Eve is nowhere mentioned anywhere in this passage of text. That's utterly remote, and so it's like I couldn't get there. Others have put forth that the woman that the the preacher has in mind is his many wives and concubines. He has like, I don't know what, 900 wives and concubines. Um, And, interestingly enough, the preacher would even tell us, Solomon would tell us, that they led him to idolatry. They did. I mean, his very first thing was he married an Egyptian woman and built her a beautiful home and she led him into idolatry. The preacher's problem is his relationship with women who led him into idolatry. Not that they're guilty. Ultimately, he's guilty of it. So that seems to be a little bit closer to our context, but I still kind of I, I couldn't make that, that point. Um, and, and the third option is that it is the woman folly the foolish woman of the book of Proverbs. And this seems to fit well. I'm going to hold this with an open hand, but I think the woman folly that is described in the book of Proverbs fits well with the seductress. Uh, So his description in Ecclesiastes fits well with the the seductress who is described in the book of Proverbs. And she is the very opposite of the woman wisdom. Delilah would be a great biblical example. But in the book of Proverbs, um, Solomon puts forth two women for us. 
There is the woman folly and the, and the woman wisdom. And the woman wisdom, he praises. And he says, you need to listen to her and follow after her and give your heart to her. She is the one who is going to, to lead you. Don't abandon her. And then next to her, he gives us the woman folly, the foolish woman. And she is a seductress. And she waits by the side of the road until some haphazard individual comes along and she leads him astray and he ends up bound. He ends up like a calf being led to the slaughter. And so Solomon gives us these two women and I think that his description here, um, I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nests and whose hands are fetters. This seems to fit very well his description of the seductress in the book of Proverbs, which he wrote also. This makes sense to me. The woman then is compared to a woman, um, wisdom is compared to a woman who is to be embraced, but folly like the seducing woman is to be avoided. Her victims are taken in her snares. But he says the wise people, the wise man escapes this woman. preacher says, and I discovered that the woman folly who seeks to trap people and bind them, she's more bitter than death. The one who pleases God escapes her snares, but the sinner is trapped by them. The one who pleases God does not think too highly of himself and that he will rely upon um, God and his wisdom to be delivered from the enticement of the foolish woman. And I guess in the culture in which we live today, I suppose I should just note, uh, because I did read some articles and sermons and stuff that, you know, Solomon is a misogynist um, based on this text that we're reading. Um, You should note then before you go there, um, I don't think he is, that Solomon has much good to say about women. Read Proverbs 12, 1, 14, 1, 18, 22, 19, 14, uh, 31, 10 through 31, and Ecclesiastes 9, 9. We will see when we get to Ecclesiastes 9 that he has much good to say about godly women and especially godly wives. The bottom line is this. All have sinned and God has provided wisdom to escape from that sin. Then he goes on, what I have found in my search. This is what I found says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among the thousand I have found, but a woman among all these I have not found. Okay. So the bottom line is, is this. Wisdom is rare. That's what he is finding. I believe he uses a proverb, that, that, that his statement here is a proverb, and he's using a proverb um, that was well known to his audience. Um, But basically, the statement is this. Wisdom is rare, that among fallen humanity, few, if any, have true wisdom. Instead, we are tainted by our sinful nature, and we are prone to vanity. And then in the last verse, he says, God made man good, but man sought after many schemes. Wisdom is rare. God, as the creator, and man as the creature, he made man good. We are not... So first of all, let me state this. God made man. What I I hope to um, impart to you is this, that we human beings are not accidents of the universe. 
but we are God's special creation. Hence, we are subject to the one who is our creator. So this idea that we just kind of came about out of nothing or by mere accident, the rubbing together of a few molecules. Of course, I'd say, where did those molecules come from? But anyways, that's something we can talk to Ricky about, and he he probably knows where they came from. Um, But we are God's special creation. He made us. But we have sought our own way. This is a reference back to the sin in the garden, and we are all affected by the fall of Adam. None of us have escaped, neither men nor women. We would not be a better society if we got rid of all the men and women ran things. We would still, women sin. And we would have our own set of problems with that. And that's the preacher's point. He's like, listen, I'm seeking wisdom and, and ultimately I'm calling you to fear God to revere him above all things. While wisdom is strong and it gives us strength, we also have to realize that you and I are broken individuals and everywhere we go is filled with more broken individuals. So I'll conclude with a few Advent connections and let you meditate on these verses. The Bible calls Jesus the wisdom of God. The preacher has searched for a wise man, but he has found that all have sinned. And even the wisest of men have limitations. In his, quote, wisdom, man has not discovered how to be reconciled with the holy God. Despite all of the philosophies, despite all of the learning, despite all of the reading, despite all of the discoveries that mankind has made, man has not discovered how to be reconciled with the holy God. In his wisdom, man has actually rejected the reality of God and become a fool. It is the fool who has said in his heart, there is no God. Man has looked at everything and rejected the reality of God. And not be, this is not a statement of wisdom. This is a statement of foolishness. Despite how many PhDs are behind your name, you are a fool when you say there is no God. Professing to be wise, they became fools. But in 1 Corinthians 1.24, we see that Paul calls Christ the wisdom of God. And this is in relation, Paul refers to Christ as the wisdom of God in relation to his redemptive work on the cross. In other words, so Christ taking on human flesh and submitting to crucifixion was not the work of a fool, but was the very personification of the wisdom of God. The preacher says, I've seen the righteous suffer. This perplexed him, but ultimately revealed in the work of Christ who suffered, but in doing so brought about salvation for those for whom he died. I've seen the righteous suffer, and there's only been one of them. And he died to, as, in, as the wisdom of God to bring you and I to God. No wisdom of man, no philosophy of man, no ideas of men have brought us any nearer to God. But Jesus, the wisdom of God, the only righteous one, suffered and died that we might be brought near to God. So where is the wise man? Human philosophy and reason have not resulted in godly wisdom. We see this in 1 Corinthians. Your human wisdom has not brought you one 
millimeter closer to God. All of your learning, all of your stuff, all of your accomplishments have not brought you closer to God. Our fallen nature continues to dominate. And that nature needs to be dealt with if we are to have true wisdom. In our fallen nature, we, do, we, will, not be able, we will not grasp the wisdom of God found in the person of Christ Jesus. That nature needs to be dealt with. So what does bring us to the highest regard for God? What brings us to the fear of God? The cross. Foolishness to the unredeemed, but it is the wisdom of God. Paul concludes his section in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 like this. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us the wisdom of God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Church, Christ is the wisdom of God, and in him we have the wisdom of God. If we are to boast, let us boast in the Lord. Father God, we give you praise and we give you thanks this morning. You have blessed us in many ways. I pray, Father, that you would guide us now in Christ's name. Amen.